0: We are continuing our series through the book of Acts today, so if you've got your Bibles, would you please take them out and go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today, Acts chapter 2. You can also take out your app and all the scripture will be there. You can follow along on the sermon Notes part of our app if you'd like to. All the scripture is going to be behind me on the screens. We just want to make it easy for you to follow along with scripture. And and as your pastor, I want you to be familiar with God's word. So, you know, if you want to use the Bible, that would be my recommendation for you. Pull out your Bible, follow along. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Now, while you're finding Acts chapter 2, let me just refresh your memory as to where we are at in our study. We've learned in Acts so far. That Jesus has indeed risen from the dead and he has made numerous post-resurrection appearances for a total of 40 days. That's what it says in the book of Acts. During those 40 days, he gave many convincing proofs that he was indeed alive. He also met with his disciples multiple times and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Of God. That's what he talked about. Kingdom of God is is God's reign in our lives, and, and we are his children, and he is our king. And that's, we're talking about God's kingdom. We know from the end of Luke's gospel that Jesus, during that post resurrection time, those 40 days, he opened up his disciples' minds. So that they could understand scripture. We know that that happened. And we also know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, right before that, he told his disciples to go back into the city of Jerusalem and wait for the gift from the Father, which we know is what? The Holy Spirit. And he said this to them about the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 Verse 8, key verse in the entire book of Acts. He says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And before he ascends into heaven, he also tells them what their purpose, their great commission is. He says, I'm sending you out because I want you to go into all the worlds and I want you to do what? Make disciples. Of all nations, then I want you to do this. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and I want you to teach them everything that I have commanded to you. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And the disciples, if you were to keep reading beyond where we left off last week, and I hope you all have done that, if you keep reading, we learn that the disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They go back into the city, and there they wait. Now, I want to let you know, the Holy Spirit does not come the same day. So Jesus said, I want you to go and wait. So it's not like that evening, the Holy Spirit, no, no, no. They had a few days of waiting. And during that time, uh, they waited for the gift to arrive. They did some things. We didn't talk about this last week, but I want to just tell you what it was. They said that, hey, Judas is gone. Judas betrayed Jesus, and we find out that Judas went out and committed suicide. Oh, there's so many questions I have about this, but the Bible doesn't tell me any more than that, but Judas took his own life, and they interpreted Scripture to say that there needed to be a replacement. Now, I'm not surprised that they interpreted Scripture that way, because what had Jesus been doing for them? Opening their minds, they could understand scripture, and so they understood, we need to have a replacement, and so they find one, one of the brothers who had been with them the whole time, his name was Matthias, and, and, and he steps in, and he becomes that 12th disciple, he takes Judas's spot, and so they, they, there's 12 disciples again. Now look at chapter 2, here's what happens next. So they're waiting, they pick another disciple, and then this happens. All right, we're going to stop right there because these first four verses are loaded. Now, I need you to turn to your neighbor and say, hey, these first four verses are loaded. I'm just going to give you time. We need to acknowledge this, okay? They're loaded. We're not going to unpack all of it, but we begin by learning that all of this happened on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost comes, and this gift from the Father, the Holy Spirit, arrives now there's plenty I could tell you today about the day of Pentecost but really what I want to point out to you about the day of Pentecost is that it comes 50 days after the Passover Pentecost is 50 days after Passover so here's the timeline and this is what I think is very important for us to understand Jesus rises from the dead and then he makes numerous post-resurrection appearances for how long 40 days then he ascends into heaven We also know that during those 40 days, he appears to over 500 people at one time. There's a lot of people that saw the resurrected Christ. Then he ascends into heaven, and his disciples go back into the city of Jerusalem, and they wait. Ten days later is the day of Pentecost. So if you're following the timeline, this day that the Holy Spirit comes, and it's this incredible incredible appearing, it is 50 days after the resurrection. So that's the timeline. 50 days has has passed since Jesus rose from the dead. It's been 10 days since he ascended into heaven. And the Bible tells us the disciples were all together in one place. We're most likely, that is the upper room that we've been talking about for weeks now, where Jesus washed their feet, had the Lord's Supper. This is most likely where they are at. And then the Holy Spirit comes, and what the Bible describes is this grand entrance, this this incredible entrance thing that happened. And and the first description we get of it is that the coming of the Holy Spirit came with this sound of a mighty wind, the blowing of a violent wind. Do you remember that old movie from the mid-1990s called Twister? Do you remember that? I went and saw this movie in the theaters, and I'll tell you, it was cutting-edge movie technology at the time. I've never seen anything like this movie before in my life, but what I remember more than anything is the way they made those tornadoes sound. I don't know if you were there, but the sound in the theater all around us was this violent wind in every scene of the movie almost, and it just almost hurt your ears. And I think that maybe, just maybe, that uh, the sound was something like I heard in that movie. There was no wind with it. There was no wind with this. There was just this noise, and it was loud, and it was violent, and that's how they described it. It sounded like a hurricane. It sounded like a tornado. It was this violent, violent wind, and it filled up the entire room that they were in. It filled the whole house. So not only are they hearing something, but they are seeing something as well. This was not some private, quiet, insignificant event. No, no, no. No, this is God making a grand entrance. God is making his presence known. And they hear it and they see it. So they hear this wind and then they see fire. Okay. Now this is Luke describing this moment. I wasn't in the room. We weren't in the room. We're getting a description. There's this fire that presents itself. And that fire divides and it comes and rests on top of each of the 12 disciples. And the Bible just simply says in that moment they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Literally, they were filled with the presence of Jesus Christ. It was His power In each of them. That is what's happening in this moment. Now the coming of the Holy Spirit in this way, it's a brand new experience for these disciples. But it's not necessarily brand new to God. We can go back into the Old Testament. There's numerous examples in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit and the presence of God is described with wind and fire. I'll give you a couple examples prophet Ezekiel spoke of how wind blew and God breathed life into dry bones, Ezekiel chapter 37. Jesus, when he was speaking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he talked to to Nicodemus about the Spirit of God is like wind, and it produces results which are are obvious, though no one sees it. Kind of like wind. You you see the effects of the wind, but you don't see wind. He said the Spirit is, is like that. Fire was the element, if you remember, that was present when Moses heard God's voice coming from what? A burning bush. John the Baptist, he predicted that Jesus would baptize um, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And you can go through the Old Testament and you can see that God has moved in the past in such ways, with wind and with fire. But right here in Acts chapter 2, it was a brand new experience for the disciples. It's also a change in direction for the way the Holy Spirit has interacted with people all through time. And here's this change. For the very first time, the Holy Spirit now is coming and is staying. You know, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, God's presence, comes and goes and it moves and leaves. But now the Holy Spirit is coming and it's going to stay. And Jesus even said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be with you and will live where? In you. This is the Lord's presence. The presence of Christ with the power of Jesus staying with the disciples from this point forward. Now now look at verse 5. Here's what happens next. So they're all now filled with the Holy Spirit. Now they, were staying in, now, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. So the disciples aren't the only ones that hear this sound, okay? It wasn't just in that room they were in this sound of a blowing, violent wind. Others heard it as well. And it's this blowing, violent wind sound, which is the most likely reason why all of these people flooded into the streets wondering what in the world did we just hear. Have you ever been sitting in your house and you hear something outside, maybe a loud explosion? What do we do? We just walk outside. What was that? And, and we, we go and investigate. And I think there's some of that going on. This sound made its way through the city of Jerusalem, and people are walking outside going, did you hear that? I heard it. What was that? There was no wind What is this? I think that this wind sound is what drew people out of their homes to see what was going on. But what caused them to be bewildered, the Bible says, it wasn't the sound they heard. It's what they saw the disciples doing. That's what bewildered them, You see, when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples, they were now able to speak in what the Bible calls other tongues. Literally, this is what it was in Acts chapter 2. The words coming out of their mouths were being understood by people who did not speak that language. That was a special gifting that they had in that moment. They didn't have it just a few minutes before, but now they do. It would be like me. Let's say pretend you know I'm an American I guess that's not pretend I am an American but let's pretend you're all from the country of Russia and none of you speak English and I'm talking to you here today in English but as Russian citizens you are understanding what I'm saying in Russian that is the miracle that's happening it'd be the same thing as like me speaking in English and all of you from lower Arkansas could understand it I mean that's kind of the same thing no, I'm kidding. But you get it, right? I mean, we're, we're talking different languages, but it's all being understood the same way. And that was this miracle of tongues here in Acts chapter 2. And as you follow down through Scripture, the most logical place where this is happening is probably in the temple courts. Because we're talking about thousands of people that came out and are experiencing this. The only place in Jerusalem that really could accommodate crowds that size would be the temple court. So most likely the, the Holy Spirit came on the disciples while they were in the upper room, filled with the Holy Spirit. They themselves made their way outside and made their way through the crowds into the temple courts area. And when they were there and all these people were there, they, they started preaching and they were filled and people understood them in their own native we're not going to read all the different countries and places that people came from but but Luke lists off for us 15 different geographical locations where all the people came from that day and they all spoke different languages they all heard it and it blew them away look at verse 12 amazed and perplexed they asked one another what does this mean so we've got some descriptive words. There was bewilderment, like, oh my goodness, what is this? There is amazement, perplexed, like, wow, what's going on? All of these emotions are happening in this time. They Obviously, we can deduce that they knew something special was taking place. Perhaps even supernatural was taking place that day. If you look at the very next verse, verse 13, it says this, though, Some, however, made fun of them. They made fun of the disciples and they said, they have had too much wine. Let me ask you a question. Have you been there before? I mean, mean, what I mean is amazed and perplexed at what God is doing And you're looking at what God is doing, and you're like, that's obviously beyond me. God's doing something. I'm amazed. I'm perplexed. And you ask the question, what does this mean? Have you ever had that experience? Some of you are here tonight, maybe, because you were amazed and perplexed by something going on in your life, and you're thinking, maybe this is from God And you're asking the question, what does this mean? And that may be the very reason why you're in church today. What does this mean that's going on in my life? I need answers. I'm amazed by this. I'm perplexed. I'm bewildered by this. I've talked with people who have survived things that should have killed them. Near-death experiences. I don't know if you've ever had a near-death experience or you walked away from something going, I shouldn't be alive. Maybe you were in a really terrible car accident, but you walked away from it. Maybe you you had a bad fall one time, and you ended up with just minor injuries, and everybody said, that fall should have killed you. Maybe you experienced some kind of miraculous restoration of health, or maybe there was a family member that had a miraculous restoration of health, and you can't explain it, nobody can explain it. Maybe, maybe it all just turned out okay. Maybe something was going bad, but the, the, it turned. And, 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 and for unknown reasons, you're just like, what does this mean? What is God doing? Many people have come to Christ because of events they can't quite put their finger on and explain what happened. And the natural turn is to look to God and admit, this must be from God and the follow-up question is, what does this mean? I'll be honest with you. I stopped trying to figure out God a long time ago. When I got out of Bible college, I thought I knew everything. Well, this is, this is how it all puts together. Here's the formula of how God works. And you check this box and push that button. God's, the result's this. I figured out pretty quick, a long time ago, that God doesn't ask my permission on what he can do. He doesn't ask your permission either. I've also learned that sometimes God's got to pick you up, shake you around a little bit, flip you upside down, drop you on your head just to get your attention. That's not the preferred method I'd like, but sometimes that's how God works. Perhaps some of us should examine the experiences we're having right now and acknowledge that just maybe these might be from God too, and the appropriate question is, what does this mean? And I think a lot of those things were going through the minds of people. They saw what was happening. They couldn't explain it. Thousands of people heard this incredible sound. They, they witnessed the disciples who don't speak their language but speaking, and they could understand it. And they wanted to know what this means. Now Peter, as we would expect, he's the very first disciple to speak up. I get this impression that the disciples were spread out throughout the temple courts and they're all doing this. I think there's 12 sermons happening all at once, but Luke clues us in to Peter's sermon, and he speaks up. Maybe everyone else got quiet, and Peter's the only one speaking. I'm not really sure, but Peter speaks up. We hear what he has to say, and we would expect him as he's going to rise up in the book of Acts, the first, you know, 10 chapters for sure, as kind of the leader of this new band of Christians, and he is going to address the crowd, and I love how he starts off. Look at verse 14. He says, Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And there's something in there that I find comical. I don't know if Peter is trying to crack a joke right here. Probably not, but it kind of comes across that way. He's like, listen, What you see, you think we're drunk? We're not drunk, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Who gets drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning? Peter's like, let me tell you what it is. And what follows is this amazing sermon, which takes up the bulk of Acts chapter 2. We're not going to read it all together, but what it does is it cuts these people to the heart And something so special is going to happen at the conclusion of this sermon. So the first thing that Peter says to the crowd is to remind them of something the prophet Joel had said. Now I want to point out something, that there were many God-fearing Jews in the crowd that day. People who acknowledge, oh yeah, the prophet Joel, yeah, yeah, know all about it. And he says, can I tell you something that the prophet Joel said? Look at verse 16. He said, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Now just think for just a minute. They're wondering, what does this mean? We're bewildered. What is all of this we're hearing and, and Peter brings up the prophet Joel, who they can all agree on, we respect and believe. And he said, this is what the prophet Joel was talking about. What you are experiencing is not the result of too, not too much wine or craziness or anything like that. No, what you are experiencing is the evidence of the arrival of God's Holy Spirit to dwell on his people. This same spirit is the same spirit that Joel talked about. And I'm pointing it out to you. How did Peter know that? Because the Lord had opened his mind to understand Scripture. And he knew that there's a connection. I can tell you, Joel talked about it. And what we are experiencing right now is what he was talking about. This same Holy Spirit is here. So Peter definitely wants them to know That the Holy Spirit has come. If you're taking notes today, this is in the app and you can fill that in or just write it down if you'd like. But Peter wants them to know the Holy Spirit has come. And Joel talked about it. And I, no doubt, this got the attention of many of them. The sound, the speaking in tongues. This is not from man, this is from God and that's what he means when he brings up the the prophet Joel. Now look at verse 22. He goes on to say this. We're going to read parts of the sermon, I'll summarize other parts for you because it's a little lengthy. But verse 22 Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This is very similar language to what we talked about in John, right? God's in control. He knows. This has all been a part of his plan, nothing by surprise, and he reminds them this was God's foreknowledge. This was his plan that he would be turned over with the help of wicked men to put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So Peter wants them to know what? The Holy Spirit has arrived. Here's what else he wants them to be sure of on that day. Jesus is alive. Make no mistake, this is kind of his whole sermon. Make no mistake, the Holy Spirit's here and Jesus is is alive. Now, I have no doubts at all that the majority of the people that had come out to hear all this, thousands of people, they were very much aware of Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. Um, Peter even acknowledges this in verse 22 when he says, You yourselves know. You yourselves know what I'm talking about. This was big news. Don't forget that Jesus' death was also accompanied by what? Darkness. None of them missed that fact. It got dark for a few hours. What else? The earthquake. And who could miss the fact that the temple veil, which was this thick curtain that divided the temple from the Holy of Holies on the moment of Jesus' death, and that earthquake ripped in half, symbolically communicating uh, that God is not separated from his people anymore. None of these people have been lost on these details. So Peter's reminding them of what they already know. Now this crowd is also not lost on the fact that many have said that Jesus had risen from the dead. Some of them have maybe even seen him during those 40 days of post-resurrection and they had all had heard the official Jewish statement from the leaders that the disciples had stolen the body. They're all aware of this stuff. Peter is speaking to a crowd of informed people, and he gets right down to business. Jesus is alive, and the resurrection that I'm telling you about proves that he is the Messiah. Now, as you go down through the rest of the sermon, you're going to see that Peter will offer three more proofs that Jesus is indeed alive, and that these proofs point to the fact that the resurrection is real, Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. Jump down to verse 29. Here's what else he says. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. Who's he talking about? King David. So he brings up Joel first. Oh, we all respect Joel. And he brings up King David. He was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So, real quick, Peter brings up King David, who is respected and revered of all the, uh, of all the people there in that place. Now, if you go to Israel today, you are going to see very quickly that today in Israel, King David is still respected, still revered as the greatest king that ever ruled over Israel. He's still a presence in that city. And so it's like Peter saying, listen, I want to tell you about something that King David said. We all respect him. And if you don't believe me, believe what David said about the Messiah. We all trust him as a prophet. David spoke about the resurrection and the Messiah. That's what he was talking about in verse 31. So King David called it. That's proof number one. King David called it. And then he moves on to proof number two, it's this, we all witnessed it. He's talking about the resurrection. He's like, I'm an eyewitness to the fact that Jesus did indeed raise from the dead. Me, John over there, Thomas, now Thomas originally doubted, but he's good now, over there. Matthias, he's kind of brand new to the disciples, but he saw it. We witness the resurrection, all of us. We know it's true. We're eyewitnesses to it, and we are telling you the truth. And that's what he meant in verse 32 when he said, we are all witnesses of it. You need to believe us. But here's the question. Were these disciples dependable witnesses? I mean, can we trust them? Can we believe what they said is true? And, and I would say, yes, we certainly can, and here's why. When when Peter says, we're all witnesses to it, I believe him. Because if you recall that when Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't believe it right away. They, They didn't believe he had risen from the dead until Jesus appeared to them and they were convinced after that. And I also think too that these disciples, there was no upside for them to preach a lie. No upside at all. This message that Jesus is alive brought them nothing but persecution and trouble every time they talked about it. This this message that Jesus is alive, it would lead to many of their imprisonment and ultimately would lead to all of their deaths. John was the only one that lived up into old age. They all died for Jesus. I think, you know, there's a few crazy people out there, there's a few fanatics that maybe would believe and promote a lie for a time but eventually they're going to cave if it's not true and all of these disciples they died for it they believed it and they died for it so when he says we're all witnesses i believe him and many in that crowd that day believed him too so he's like hey Joel talked about this Holy Spirit. King David, he called it. We're all witnesses of it. And then he says this, proof number three. Look around and see the pouring out of the Spirit, verse 33. What you are seeing, what you are experiencing, where did all this come from? It's evidence that the the Lord has poured out His Spirit on us. The, the, The winds and the speaking in tongues, it's all evidence that all of this is true. Now look at verse 36. Here is the result of this entire sermon. Therefore, Peter said, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Can you imagine standing up there in front of all those thousands of people and saying, you did it. You killed him! Every one of you's got blood on your hands. You did it. And he says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut To the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It's kind of like so much conviction. This this Holy Spirit inspired sermon hit the mark. You crucified the Messiah. You, You killed the anointed one sent by God. The one that King David prophesied about, who is the true heir to the throne of Israel, that his descendant, which is Jesus, is going to be the new king of God's kingdom, the spiritual kingdom. And you all, you killed him. He was right here 50 days ago, and you killed him. And many of them believed, they were so convicted and i think conviction introspection contemplation self examination is often the result of holy spirit communication you know god's truth being presented in many different forms one of which preaching have you ever heard a sermon And it caused you to be convicted or to self-examine or to look internally and have some introspection and contemplate what's going on. That's the result often of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been listening to a song and that song convicted you and caused you to look inside? The Holy Spirit's involved in that communication. Have you ever had a conversation with a friend And that friend, it was almost like they were delivering a message from God to you and it hit you right in the gut. It's probably because it was. Holy Spirit communication. Have you ever been reading God's word and it cut you to the heart? And it caused you to to look inside and self-examine and contemplate and seek forgiveness. The word of God. Holy Spirit communication. Holy Spirit communication often leads. This is what's happening in that they are cut to the heart because the Holy Spirit, through Peter, has delivered a message and they got the message and they understood what had to happen. What do we got to do? Tell us and we'll do it. And so the very next verse is, is Acts 2 38, perhaps one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. Do you know it? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And what? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter delivers this message of hope. Guess what, friends? Not all hope is lost. You can fix it. There is hope. There is The sun can come up tomorrow. It's not all hope is lost. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. Your sin, your presence with the help of evil men, kill Jesus. But I'm going to tell you what you can do. You can repent. You can be baptized. You unite with Christ. Basically, I'm going to go forward and say, I'm making a change, and I'm going to seal that change by the washing away of my sins, and I'm, I'm, I'm standing before the whole world saying, I'm, I'm on Jesus' team now. He says, you can repent. You can be baptized, you can make a 180-degree turn, and you can go from an enemy of God to a friend of God, and none of that's changed today, my friends. You can still make that change in an instant. And what is the result of that change? You also get what? The same Holy Spirit that we have that is enabling everything that you see before you. You can have it too. What an incredible invitation that was on that day and still is today. That you can repent of your sins, you can unite with Christ, and you can have the same Holy Spirit. Verse 39 says this the promise, so this is a promise. This isn't just, you know, maybe. This is a promise. The promise is for you and your children. And all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And as I think about it, just how amazingly incredible is our God. Do you see what I see? That on this day, God gave the gift of tongues. Is there a better example in the entire Bible that illustrates more clearly That the good news of Jesus Christ is for everybody. The good news of Jesus Christ is for everybody. God wants to speak to every person in his or her own language and give the saving message of salvation in Jesus Christ. One message for everybody. We have a truly amazing God. And this is at the very heart of what all the book of Acts is all about. And it says in verse 40, With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. How did they do that? Repentance. Faith. Save yourself from it. Those who accepted his message were baptized And catch this if you've never read this before, and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. As best we can tell, we had 12 disciples and we had some other people that followed Jesus that weren't disciples, but they were followers, like Matthias, who became a disciple. That number was a little over 100 people at that moment. And in one single day, they went from a little over 100 to 3,000. And the church was born. More on that next time.